The following sermon audio is from The Source Church in Plainfield, Illinois. More information about The Source can be found at www.sourcechurch.net. We will be starting at verse 13 through 22, and then we will be moving to Job 2, verses 7 through 10. Now there was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine at their oldest brother's house. And there came a messenger to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them. And the Sabaeans fell upon them and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was still yet speaking, there came another and said, The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them. And I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The Chaldeans formed three groups and made a raid on the camels and took them and struck them down, the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, Your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in your oldest brother's house, in their older brother's house, and behold, a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house. And it fell upon the young people, and they are dead, and I alone have escaped to tell you. Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's room, and naked I shall return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Job 2, verse 7. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with lonesome sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And he took a piece of pottery with which to scrape himself while he sat in the ashes. Then his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, You speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God? And shall we not receive evil? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. This is the word of God. Our great God, we thank you for this Mother's Day. We pause and we thank you for the mothers in each of our lives. You use them to keep us alive, to teach us so much, and for many of us to point us to you, to show us something of your character through their care, through their mercy, through their kindness. Lord, I pray for the mothers in this church today, whether their kids are still young and running around, or whether their kids are grown. I pray for an extra measure of mercy as they consider their task. I pray that you would give them great wisdom from your word, that that is where they would get their messaging, not from social media, not from the fads of this brief moment in time. Lord, I pray for the mothers of our church that they would be fearless that they would fear you, God, that they would fear as a result 
nothing else, not the future, not the opinions of others. Lord, make them courageous. I pray for our mothers, Lord, that they would be full of joy as well, the joy of their salvation, that they would be able to reflect that to their kids, even in the midst of life's heartaches, that there would be a deeper joy that holds on, not a, not a fake, glib sort of happiness that's forced, but a deep joy that through the pain can say, I have everything I need. Lord, use these mothers to show their kids the smile of God. And I pray that as much as the kids would know that their mothers love them deeply, I pray even more that the kids would know that their moms love you most of all, and that that would be a deep and a profound thing for them to see. Lord, as we look at your word today, as we turn to Job again, Help us as we consider these heavy words. It's not, not pleasant things to think about, but so essential that we think about them now, that we train ourselves to think rightly and feel rightly before the day of tragedy comes. Or for some of us, it has come, and we, we're thinking backward. We're applying your truths in hindsight. Either way, or for many, both might be the case. We pray that your Holy Spirit would be our true teacher today. In Jesus' name, amen. Before we get started, I just wanted to mention that um, we've got extras of this book. So, so mothers, when you came in, you, you would have gotten one of these along with a coffee card because we do believe that coffee is, you know, a, a very necessary item for many mothers. But uh, you also got this book, and I want every woman in this room to know there are extras of this on the back table. I'll also bring some downstairs later. Um, five things to pray for your kids. So if you're not a mother here today, but you take interest in nieces or nephews or your neighbor kids, which, by the way, is how my mother-in-law came to Christ. The, the woman next door became a spiritual mother to her. Um, if you take interest in other kids like that, or, or the kids of this church, if you want to be a true godmother to the kids of this church, you don't have to have legal charge over kids in order to take a motherly interest in their lives. So I'd really encourage you to take a copy of this book uh, to help you with that serious, serious privilege. Take one of these books, pick a kid or several kids, and just start praying for them faithfully taking interest in their life, wow, what a ministry that would be. So there'll be some of these in the back over there, and, and I'll also bring some downstairs. Well, today we turn to a person in the story of Job whose appearance is short, but whose impact is large. It's Job's wife. She only shows up in two verses. I'll read those again. Then his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, You speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. So in this text, I want to show you just two things, really. First, the temptation. The temptation to reduce the goodness of God to his gifts. 
the temptation to reduce the goodness of God to his gifts. And secondly, the reality that God's goodness is himself. God's goodness is himself. Okay, let's start with the temptation that Job's wife has succumbed to and which she is actually tempting Job with as well. I'm, I'm very sympathetic to Job's wife, actually. Uh, think about her situation. As a young woman, um, she worshipped God. She married a really good man. All of life seemed to flourish. She was respected by other women. She was in a position to give advice and to offer them help. And she had ten children of her own, seven sons, three daughters. That may seem like a lot to you, but in an ancient agrarian society, that's, that's exactly what you wanted. You can imagine all those pregnancies, all those birth stories, all those 2 a.m. feedings, childhood sicknesses, the memories of teaching these kids different skills. I don't think they had shoelaces, but, you know, the equivalent. Watching their growing pains, their successes as they figured out life. You're watching these cute little ones grow into curious adventurers and then into young adults full of potential their own bold ideas. They're going to go out and conquer the world. They've got all these untapped skills. And as Job's wife looked into the future, she could anticipate hearing of her mature kids' accomplishments, sitting grandkids on her lap, sweet times of family reunion. You know, surely the, the later years would be rich and full from the care given back to her from these younger generations. But it was not to be. All of this, the memories, the achievements, the hopes, were all smashed to pieces in one day. Can we just pause here a moment? Uh, this is not just an interesting story to quickly process. This is utterly heartbreaking. It's devastating for both her and Job, but, but consider also the unique weight on a woman. All of the little fears and, and heartaches throughout the years that she underwent, especially in more traditional societies. It fell to the woman, to the mother, to look out for the kids. Job was out with the flocks and the herdsmen, building corrals, digging wells, that sort of thing. But Job's wife knew these kids better than anyone else. No doubt she felt their loss more deeply than anyone else. But even with all that she's lost, it wasn't even at that moment when she said the words of verse 9. Because at that moment, even with their livelihood destroyed, even with their kids' lives snuffed out, even at that moment, she still had Job to comfort her. They were in this nightmare together. But then came the events of verses 7 and 8, where Job is struck with a horrid disease. He wasn't taken from her, but he was no longer himself. In chapter 7, he describes this skin disease at work in him, and he says, When I lie down, I say, When shall I arise? But the night is long, and I am full of tossing till the dawn. My flesh is clothed with worms and dirt. My skin hardens and then breaks out afresh. My days are swifter than a weaver's shuttle and come to their end without hope. So to Job's wife, it might have looked like, okay, my husband is literally being tortured to death. It might have been a distorted sort of compassion that made her say these things. 
Perhaps she really thought that the act of cursing God would kill Job and end his misery. Or maybe she's speaking out of bitterness and, and personal devastation alone. We don't know. But knowing human frailty as we do, in, in one sense, can we falter? To have your whole world ripped out from under you like that, it would only be natural to believe at that moment that all is lost, that nothing is left, that life is not worth living, that it's some sort of sick joke by a cruel mind. And in that moment, there's no will to wrestle with God through these things or work at readjusting one's view of reality. So her response is the normal one. It's not unusual. Job is the strange one. So she asks him, do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. Even though we can understand this response, we still know from the earlier verses that here she's tripping up, isn't she? She's, she's becoming a spokesperson for Satan. She's becoming Satan's mouthpiece. She's tempting Job. Remember chapter 2, verse 4? Satan answered the Lord and said, Skin for skin, all that a man has he will give for his life. But stretch out your hand and touch his bone and flesh, and he will curse you to your face. That's what Satan's trying to do. So while our deepest sympathy goes out to Job's wife, we see that in her grief, she's being used. And so she's placing this very idea in Job's mind that would mean Satan's victory over the whole scenario. Now Job ex escapes the temptation, but her succumbing to thoughts like this, it still leaves Job completely alienated, probably totally distraught. Just an aside, there's the very real possibility whenever you're tempted that Satan is trying to sift you in order to further discourage someone else in your life. The decision of whether or not to sin, whether to, to honor or curse God with your actions, it, there's always more at stake than just your own well-being. We may think that, well, no one's going to know. No one else is going to be affected. But listen to this quote from Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He says, the individual must realize that his hours of aloneness react upon the community. In his solitude, he can sunder and besmirch the fellowship, or he can strengthen and hallow it. Every act of self-control of the Christian is also a service to the fellowship. So our sinning or our turning to prayer each day, it has a profound impact on the other believers in our lives. This could be family members, friends, people in our churches. Well, since we're considering Job's wife, I want to ask, what about your spouse? Do you make it easier or harder for him or her to walk with Jesus each day? Maybe write that question down. Think about it more later. The response of Job's wife likely would have been a harder hit to Job even than the losses themselves, given their history of intimacy, given that they probably had this shared vision previously of serving the Lord together. And then for Job to hear these words from his wife, it, it, it must have been totally disorienting for him. With perhaps any other man, it would have undermined the last foundation of his faith. What was the temptation? If we're going to sum it all up, it's not a straightforward temptation. It's not like the serpent with Eve, like, hey, if you just take this illicit thing, then it'll feel good. 
It is like that, and it's not like that. Um, this is kind of an inverted temptation because God has already removed the thing that was seen as the ultimate good. And so the temptation says, since God has said no, say no to him. It's not a temptation to acquire a pleasure, but rather a temptation to find a shortcut to relief. We can do senseless things when we feel bad enough. We can decide that there's some injustice in God's administration of the universe, and so we react by trying to bite the hand that feeds us. And this isn't a uniquely female sin, and it's not only present in times of tragic loss. Everyone has their certain things that they always expected God would give them. They grow terrified when they're faced with the possibility that, wait, God may not give me that? Or God might take away this good thing that I have? In fact, this is the story of every single person you've ever met who has walked away from the faith. You don't have to be taken aback or befuddled when someone essentially curses God with their actions and walks away from Christianity. Because behind whatever other events in their story, there's always this same underlying thread that God wasn't enough for them. His promises weren't enough for them. His timing wasn't enough for them. Instead, they demanded something that following Jesus wasn't getting for them. Or maybe following Jesus had taken away from them. And so they left him instead. People demand God's gifts in all sorts of ways. They, they decide that living for him is futile if it doesn't involve romance or success or health or freedom from pain. I know a girl who became famous by writing a detailed blog of her surprising journey from being a good girl at a Christian college to then finding the love of her life in another woman in New York City. And it was a shock to some people, but not to me, because I saw from the start that what she seemed to treasure was being a famous, hip, talented writer for God. But she seemed to care about the hip and talented writer part more than God. He wasn't her treasure. So when the hip and talented writer part wasn't panning out, she made the necessary adjustments and jettisoned God. Now, this is a very American example. And by including it, I don't mean to make Job's wife's situation sound simple or vain. Her desires, admittedly, were not shallow. Her desires... I mean, they're rooted in the very definition of what it meant to be a woman in that society. If you've ever spent time in traditional Eastern cultures, like, they can be very unkind to women who don't get married or who can't have children, who suffer miscarriages or the death of children. Superstition can make these women outcasts and, and pariahs, distrusted, isolated. So I don't want to make this seem easy, right? Job's wife is, in one sense, she's being asked to trust God when her whole identity her whole place in society is being destroyed. It's not a small thing. It's not an easy crisis to respond to in faith. And let's pause and ask. That was her whole identity. Well, what's your identity? In what gifts of God do you sometimes find your identity? Think long and hard about it. Is it your work, your career? Your skills and hobbies, your possessions, how other people view you. Whatever it is that forms that, that self-identity, what if that aspect of you were suddenly stripped away? 
perhaps not only just by an accident, but, but in a way that seemed completely unjust, how would you respond? Would you shake your fist at God? Would you recoil from him in bitterness? It's worth deciding now that no aspect of our lives is an essential good. We can leave the question of our identity in God's hands. Now, we don't live in a society that demands motherhood like Job's society did, but the temptation can still be there to find an essential identity in it. So as beautiful of a gift as family is, it's good, I think, on this Mother's Day that we also temper that celebration with a reminder that family and the comfort and the social status that it affords, if we're not careful, it can become a replacement for God himself. It can become an idol if we're not careful. Anything that we would choose above God is an idol, an object of false worship. And instead of giving life, as the worship of God does, all false worship steals life in the long run. Ten years ago, Sarah and I were part of a Bible study gathering with some other young missionary couples, and only one of the couples had a child at that point. And we were shocked at the direction that the conversation went one day because someone had asked the question, what would you do if an extremist held a gun to your child's head and said, renounce your faith or I'll kill your child? And to our dismay, the only mother in the room, she didn't even think about it. She's like, easy, I'd totally renounce my faith. And then I'd repent later. We were all shocked. I mean, first of all, I just think it's a little short-sighted. If, if someone's going to threaten this, they could kill your child either way, whatever you say. And, and frankly, they could kill you, and you may not even have time to repent afterward. But m- most importantly, that's not what it looks like to treasure God most of all. And her response was, well, you'll understand one day when you have kids. I can say by the grace of God that All Sarah and I have come to understand is that family was an idol for that woman. And she fell for the same temptation that Job's wife did. The temptation to reduce the value of God to the sum of his gifts in our lives. As we talked about two weeks ago, Satan wants to expose the dirt on us. How will these Christians respond to suffering? Will they forsake their God and prove that he's not enough? Will they treasure the gifts above the giver? Is Satan right? Is the unbelieving world right in thinking that God is not enough for us? That if we have the good things taken away, then we will simply curse God to his face. Job's wife tripped over that test, and she buys into the lie that God isn't good if his good gifts are missing. One theologian stated the problem quite clearly, and I love this quote. It says, If we love God for something less than himself, we cherish a desire that can fail us. We run the risk of hating him if we do not get what we hope for. If we love God for something less than himself, we cherish a desire that can fail us. We run the risk of hating him if we do not get what we hope for. That's the temptation. But now let's turn to the reality. The reality. Amazingly, Job sees through the temptation and he corrects his wife. He labels her temptation for what it is, foolishness. And then he points instead to the reality of the situation. That the goodness of God that we need isn't in the good things that he gives. 
It's in himself. I say that Job points to that reality because it's not actually what he says. What he says is, shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? Or you could translate that last word, disaster or harm. Shall we not receive disaster from him? See, understanding reality looks like a commitment to receive both good and disaster from God without rejecting him. But why? Why should we do that? Because God himself is the good. The good isn't just what he can give us. The good is himself, his presence, his relationship with us. That is the ultimate good. And I could anticipate an objection here. Like, well, can they really be separated, you might ask? Like, can we separate God himself from the good things that he gives? How else do you experience a person other than the good that they bring or don't bring into your life? And in a sense, no, I mean, this objector would be right. If someone only ever gives you bad things, well, then they're bad. Or if they give you good things up to a point, but then it's just to lure you into something that's forever bad, then they're bad, right? It doesn't matter if we speak of this person as good in other contexts or in other relationships. What matters to me from my experience is my interactions from start to finish with this person. Did they bring good into my life? And I won't argue with that. That is the test of if someone is good in your life, your interactions with them from start to finish. But that's just it. Time is a big factor. And Job's wife is closing the clock on the relationship, and she's drawing an arbitrary time frame in deciding if God is good. But as we see from Job chapter 42, these losses weren't meant to be the end of the story. So if we draw that arbitrary time frame, then we're kind of like children who say, I hate you to our parents because they ground us for two weeks. And in our minds, we can't think of life beyond the next two weeks and and what the cool kids are going to be doing that we're going to miss out on. But then if we, depending on our stage of maturity and our level of wisdom, as that grows, then we have patience for a broader time frame. And the time frame that scripture invites us into is eternity. When Job's wife is thinking that all is lost, there's a problem. She has a very limited perspective. And so do we. So do we. Now maybe here we should just read the end of the book of Job um, so that we can draw that into the analysis. I'll start reading um, chapter 42 at verse 10. And the Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he had prayed for his friends. And the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. Then came to him all his brothers and sisters and all who had known him before and ate bread with him in his house. And they showed him sympathy and comforted him for all the evil that the Lord had brought upon him. And each of them gave him a piece of money and a ring of gold. And the Lord blessed the latter days days of Job more than his beginning. And he had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 yoke of oxen, and 1,000 female donkeys. He also had seven sons and three daughters. And he called the name of the first daughter Jemima, and the name of the second Kezia, and the name of the third Karen Hapak. And in all the land there were no women so beautiful as Job's daughters. And their father gave them an inheritance among their brothers. 
And after this, Job lived 140 years and saw his sons and his sons' sons four generations. And Job died an old man and full of days. You know, once I, I was trying to explain the book of Job to a child, and I was doing a very poor job. Um, so I asked her, what's the main point of the story? And she said, if God takes your stuff away, then he's going to give you twice as much in the end. <laughs> that, is not, that is not the message of the book of Job. And um, some of you have, have seen for yourselves that when God takes away, he doesn't always give back more or, or any um, of the same kind. But, um, but that is exactly why this closing section is so important. It, it represents a few things for every believer, even though our story isn't going to, going to literally end with however many thousand sheep. Um, first, we need to see that no believer suffers alone. No believer suffers alone. See this beautiful vignette about how his friends come and comfort him and provide contributions to, to help him out. I wonder if Frank Capra knew about this when he was making the end of um, It's a Wonderful Life. It's a very George Bailey sort of scene with him putting money in the jar. Um, but God will use his people to provide for you where you have come to lack. That's one thing that a longer perspective shows us. Secondly, just as Job has more children here at the end of the book, we can rest assured that God uses his tested and approved ones to be a source of life and hope to those of the next generation. doesn't mean that you're going to have more kids after you've been suffering a lot at age 55 or whatever, okay? But it, it means that you will have a voice with those who come after you. Your suffering will not be wasted, but it will be part of their upbuilding, part of what helps them to flourish in the end. And thirdly, the ending to the book, enlisting all of Job's restored wealth, it also signals a certain reward that is there for all who faithfully suffer without rejecting God. Even if the fullness of that reward waits for eternity, we can rest assured that by trusting in the God of Job, we will gain an imperishable inheritance. So we need that broader perspective if we're not going to just call it quits on our faith when life doesn't pan out as expected. But then to address another objective, well, is that it then? Is, is a Christian life all just waiting? Is this life just misery, but we're to somehow trust that bliss is to follow? Is it wrong for us to hope for any good and enjoyable aspects to life now? And this brings us to a fundamental question of, what is this world for? Whose story are we in? Why did... God, the self-sufficient one, even create this world. And what are we to do with it? The testimony of Scripture again and again is that we aren't here just to pursue our own little kingdoms and try to squeeze as much enjoyment as possible into these meager 70 to 100 years. No, we are to glorify God and begin enjoying Him forever. How do we enjoy God starting now? And we could answer that in many ways. But one answer is we do it through feasting and fasting. Feasting and fasting. Through times of plenty and times of want. In times of plenty, when everything is going right, when work is good, children are healthy, all is safe and flourishing, 
The food is delicious. Our times together are rich. I'm well rested today. There's excitement for tomorrow. Life is good in those times, isn't it? And it's all meant to cause our hearts to well up in praise and in love to the author of all of those gifts, the good one himself. But when all is not well, when finances are brutalized, when relationships grow sour, when health is fleeting, when failure and misery seem inescapable, when the world says, I'm starving for happiness, the Christian knows, I'm not starving. This is a fast. It feels like I'm starving, but I trust the one who gives and who takes away. And so I, with contentment, forego that which it feels like I can't live without. I'm fasting. And so both the partaking of life's gifts and the living without them becomes the means of exulting in the goodness of God. In times of feasting, by celebrating the good things he gives and letting them point our hearts back to him, back to the goodness that we find in him himself. And in times of fasting, by yearning for God himself to draw near and longing for him to affirm that he is all we really need, even if everything else is taken away, he is the goodness that we need within himself. But this is getting a little bit abstract. What do we mean when we say that God is good in himself apart from his gifts? We can imagine a little bit, I think, from human relationships. I mean, I, I like a lot about how my wife makes my life brighter and easier and more enjoyable through any number of gifts that she brings into my life. But if she did something that made my life harder, like let's say she was at fault for some accident that would then put me in debt and bankruptcy for the rest of my life, I'm not going to kick her to the curb. Why? Well, I mean, many reasons. But for, for the sake of this illustration, because she doesn't just bring good to my life, financial or otherwise. She is good. I enjoy her. I love being in her company. In one sense, we could say, since we're married, I, I need her. So when we say that God himself is the goodness, we mean God alone is what we need most, not a pleasant life that he may or may not bring us. Some who have clung to this God most cheerfully throughout history have been the ones who have lived the most challenging lives. But they agreed with the psalmist and they said thoughts about God like, I have no good apart from you. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. Whom have I in heaven but you? And on earth there is nothing that I desire beside you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Your steadfast love is better than life. This is why the Apostle Paul said things like, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Now you can, tr you can choose to treat those words just like, okay, that's nice poetry. That's, that's some hyperbole, nice sounding sentiments. But that's not what Christians throughout history have done. 
They have clung to those words. So if we're not actually going to believe that God himself is our greatest good, then why are we here? Why are we here? Like, go get a massage or something. Because in that case, there's nothing essential happening here. But if he is more valuable than anything he could take away, well, then we have a sure and steady anchor for the soul. And this is exactly why Job goes on for the next 40 chapters to wrestle with God, because he can handle the loss of everything else, but he can't handle the loss of God himself. Job understands that God is in a category by himself. We cannot treat God just like any, any other human friend. If a human friend were to allow harm to come to me or my family um, without explanation, without an apology, I would end that friendship, you know? I would break our relationship. But when God allows that kind of suffering, also without explanation, without apology, and the sufferer struggles but endures in relationship with God, then the sufferer proves the validity of the relationship, of, of, of the worship of God as God. That's what Job gets. He's relating to God as God. He's not reducing God to someone who must either give good as we understand it or be written off. Now, the fact of the matter is that not every good gift had been removed from Job's wife. If she had caught her breath and watched Job's example, she would have quickly seen reminders of God's kindness, his mercy, his faithfulness, not only exhibited to his people, but exhibited to all of creation every day. I mean, yesterday, just walk outside for goodness sake. That's the character of our God. But the gifts that God had removed from her were apparently the ones that mattered most to her. And sometimes God does strip those away. And he confirms our faith by forcing us to hold on to him and him alone. Now, we don't know what became of Job's wife. I think there's really just two possibilities. The text doesn't say. Um, she could have totally given up, like she said, cursed God, and maybe she died out of bitterness or some other way. And so she kind of wrote herself out of the story. And then if that was the case in chapter 42, when God restored Job, then his subsequent children must have come from a second wife. But I'd prefer to hope that those children are from the same wife who heeded Job's words and repented. He's actually very gentle with her. Do you see that? Job's very gentle. He doesn't call her names. He doesn't even assume to know all that's in her heart, but he just says, you speak as one of the foolish women speak. In other words, I don't believe you're a foolish woman. So please be careful what you say. And perhaps you, like Job's wife, have lost your grip on the goodness of God. Maybe you've elevated the value of his gifts over the value of God himself. And maybe as some of those gifts have been stripped away, so has been your sincere and eager worship of this God. Now, if you're here today, I assume you haven't cursed God and died. Thankful for that. But maybe that's where a big piece of you is at emotionally, and you're just kind of numb, and you're just going through the motions of living for him. I want to tell you that when your faith is gone and when you have the bitter words of Satan in your ear, the accuser, and the, they're not only on your ear, but then they're on your lips toward others, 
I want you to know that God is not actually the cruel destroyer that you fear him to be in your bitter moments. He's actually gentle, like his spokesman, Job. And he warns you not to speak as if you were one of the foolish ones, because he has better purposes for you, restorative purposes. Only you must learn that God himself is of more value than any of his gifts. Commit to receiving good and disaster without drawing quick conclusions as if you were the all-knowing judge. The events of Job happened at a time in redemptive history when not much was revealed yet. Uh, even the first five books of the Bible hadn't been written at that time, we think. And um, very few details about God's plan were known. But we, on the other hand, we have the, the full counsel of Scripture. We, we can see it so clearly. We have all these, this further witness to the character of our God and the certainty of final renewal in Jesus Christ. So with that, can you not see Jesus Christ? Can you not look on him, look on his character, look at what he accomplished for you, and then decide to reject bitterness and receive both good and bad from this God? Because if you will set your hope on him, he promises that all things... All things, absolutely all things, will work together for your good. Just give it the longer time frame. Look to eternity. So Lord, we pray for faith that you would help us to do just that. To not draw quick conclusions about you. To not to be, not to be like an angry child who who says my experience in these few years determines all, even if our few years have been 80 or more. Open our eyes to what you're about, to your faithfulness um, beyond the circumstances. Lord, I pray that you'd remind your people here today of the value of the gift of yourself how it is far more precious than anything, anything else that you could give or take away. And Lord, some people listening to this might not even know you, and this, this may be just a bunch of crazy talk to them. I pray that you'd open their eyes, and let them taste and see that the Lord is good. In Jesus' name, amen.